I invite you to take your Bible this morning and turn to Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. I will be focusing on those verses a little bit this morning. We are in the summertime months going through a series of messages called Lessons from Jesus, and Pastor Josh kicked that off for us several weeks ago with the whole idea of listening and learning. Jesus was about his father's business. And when he was, as a young boy, uh, brought to Jerusalem, and uh, in the process of family life and in the process of travel and so on and so forth, something or other happened with communication. You know what? Communication wasn't good then either. <laughs> oh, we find out sometimes today that communication is not so good. One of my lines in life, and I don't know if I'll ever be important enough to be quoted, but we'll see. Communication is a wonderful thing. Occasionally it works. Well, I know that's not so humorous, but it's kind of true, isn't it? And so here was Jesus. He got left behind, and he was in the temple. He was speaking to the teachers of the law. He was asking and answering questions, and uh, that was interesting. So there he was in the process of his young life, learning and listening. Now, we've got children's ministry happening down the hallway this morning. We've had the kids with us the last uh, two or three Sundays, but they're uh, down there in more of a large group session type of um, um, learning experience this morning. I believe it was George Barna, who is a very credible Christian researcher, uh, has said that uh, by the time a child is nine years old, they're essentially set in their value system. Think about it. Think about our own lives when we look back on our childhood, essentially set in our value system by the time we're about nine years old. Well, here's Jesus as a very young boy, having learned valuable things from his mother and father, listened very carefully, and then some 30-odd years later, he starts into his public ministry. Think about all the development that went on. Think about all the growth. Think about all the learning and listening that he did in those nearly 30 years. And then his ministry opens. The platform is set. The curtains of time draw back. And now Jesus enters the stage of public opinion. And it really is public opinion because it doesn't matter what he says, he's going to get responses from some that are very positive. He's going to get responses from others that are very negative. We read it through the Scripture. So he opens his inaugural address by opening with saying, Blessed, enriched, fulfilled, contented, satisfied, blessed are the poor in spirit. And then he goes on with a number of other statements that we took a look at over the last two Sundays. Well, today I want to carry on in the theme of lessons from Jesus in a message that I've just entitled, Walk in Truth, It is God's Will. So if you'd read with me, please, from Romans chapter 5, and you go like, why are you in Romans if you're talking about Jesus? Well, you know, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. And what Paul wrote in Romans is exactly what Jesus would be teaching. 
back in the gospel. So read these uh, 11 verses with me, would you please? Therefore, and of course, when we see that, we just want to have a bit of an understanding of what precedes it, and we'll talk about that in a few moments. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, there, there it is right there. Through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if we were still, sorry, for if we were enemies, sorry, we'll get this straight yet, won't we? Let's try that again. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Pray with me, please. Father God, thank you for your word this morning. And as we look at it, we pray your rich blessing. We pray that I would be a vessel of obedience to you, that I would speak your word. And Lord, that we would be open in our hearing, in our hearts, in our wills to accept your word today and apply it to life circumstances. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he addressed very practical circumstances in life. He addressed issues that everyday person was facing, and he spoke of things like murder and adultery and divorce. He spoke about speaking the truth and getting even with someone by whom one has been wronged. He spoke of love and charitable deeds He spoke of religious practices, prayer and fasting. He addressed the subject of wealth. He spoke of individuals looking upon the acts of others in a condemning manner. He spoke of what we know as the golden rule and true and false teaching. Sounds pretty relevant to life, doesn't it? All of these things are things that many of us have experience with. Some of us say, well, I can't relate to that. And, of course, I respect the person who says I can't relate and a little little, uh, um, standard of life, I suppose you might call it, that I have developed over the years is that there's certain things that I can't relate to. And rather than trying to be patronizing and rather than trying to be false and plastic, I have just learned to say, listen, friend, I can't relate, but will you allow me to care? And, you know, I've never had anybody turn me down yet when I've asked for the privilege of caring. 
So why did Jesus give his inaugural address on so many topics? Why did he go in there in just the first few lines of his address, he hit all kinds of issues. You know, you'd say, well, it, it, it would have been a much better sermon if he would have narrowed it down to one topic, perhaps, or two. Well, you see, I really believe that he wanted then, and he wants now, each of his followers to live a life of blessing and fulfillment. And when he started out then by giving an inaugural address on a whole lot of different topics, these were going to be topics that he would be addressing further on and further on through his next three years of ministry. And you read the Scripture, and I don't know when was the last time you sat down and read a good chunk, maybe all of the Gospels, kind of in one sitting or almost one sitting, but I would encourage you to do that. You see, Jesus' will is for us to walk in truth. Jesus' will is for us to walk in blessing, and that word blessing means fulfillment and contentment and satisfaction in life. I had an interesting question come from someone to me this week. This particular person had been studying this and studying the Beatitudes, and particularly the one that we focused on last Sunday, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they, can, they shall be filled. And, and this person said to me, they said, can we hunger and thirst after righteousness and be content at the same time? I thought, that's a good question. It's a real good question. And when I had opportunity, it came to me in the form of a, of a text message, and then a little later on, we talked personally. And I said, you know, isn't it kind of interesting that physically we eat and carry on in life because we feel hungry, or my, my wife thinks that I eat because it's 12 noon and 6 o'clock. She said, Art eats by the clock. Well, okay, uh, I'm a disciplined person. What can we say? <laughs> I've programmed my body to be hungry at 12 and 6. Do we only eat once? No. Do we hunger only once? No. Do we hunger and are filled and hunger and are filled and contented and hunger and are filled on and on and on? Yes, I believe we do. So I believe in our spiritual hunger and our spiritual appetite, we can hunger and thirst after righteousness and receive God's filling and hunger and thirst and receives God's filling on and on and on and on. And I don't know what your habit is to be in the Word of God, but I encourage you, friends, today to dig in deep and enjoy the Word of God because that takes care of much of our hunger and our thirst for righteousness. There's a story told of Clyde the carpenter. Clyde went uh, uh, through his life working for the same contractor, and now he felt it was time to retire, and he had saved little, but uh, he felt that his wife and and he could scrape by in retirement. And he went to his boss and he said, Boss, I'm tired of building houses. I'm going to retire. Well, a few days later, the boss came to him and said, Clyde, I would like you to build one more house, please. I really need your supervision. And uh, after much persuasion, Clyde finally agreed, but his heart just wasn't in it. He worked, you know, in a, in a, in a lackadaisical manner, and his workmanship was shoddy, and the quality was well below his usual high standard. He cut many corners, and the house barely passed inspection. On the final day, the house was finished. 
The boss gathered the employees of the company together on the job site, right out there in front of the house, and uh, he told Clyde, now make sure you're there and make sure your wife is there because this is a celebration of your retirement. We want to retire you. We want you to go out right there where you have, have finished for us. Well, a happy retirement cake was brought out and lots of handshakes and back pats were, were given by the, the company employees because they hated to see Clyde go because he's been a good man. Well, his speech, the, the, the boss of the company says, uh, as you know, Clyde has been with us for many years and he's been a very faithful employee and our company has decided to do something very special for Clyde and his wife. And he turned to Clyde and he said, Clyde, this house that you built is not going to be sold. We are giving you this house as a gift for your many years of service. This is your retirement home. And he reached out and gave Clyde the keys and shook his hand. And he said, I know you will enjoy it the rest of your life. Happy retirement, Clyde, in your new home. Well, friends, today... That day, Clyde learned a very important lesson. He had no idea that the energy or the lack thereof that he put into the house was going to be received by himself. The letter to Paul to the church of Rome opens with Paul saying that he is not ashamed of the gospel of Christ For it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. The first several chapters in the book of Romans. And then he goes on to identify man's problem. Man's problem, mankind, men and women, teens and children, our problem is the need for God's righteousness. The Gentiles and the Jews are all alike in the guilt of missing God's mark as far as his standard of righteousness is concerned. And the Gentile, in their unthankful, futile thinking, it says in Romans, their hearts were darkened. They changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the image of the corruptible, beasts, birds, and creeping things, and they shifted their focus, they shifted their worship, And Romans chapter 1 and verse 24 says, God gave them up to uncleanness. What a story. What a sad situation. Now to the Jew, God judged them by their works. And great works they had. In the book of Jewish culture and customs, author Steve Herzig explains the Jewish law system. Now, I don't know if you have read anything in the book of Leviticus or the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, lately. But let me just take you through a few. It is a series of do this and don't do this. That was the Jewish law. It's called mitzvot. Well, there's 613 mitzvot in the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, And they're divided into 248 thou shalt, or do this, and 365 thou shalt nots, don't do this. The 248 was supposedly relevant to the number of parts of the human body, and the 365, of course, corresponded to the number of days in a year. Now, these two 
are divided into three more components of commandments. There were the hukim, or statutes, commands given by God that are hard to understand. For example, it says in Deuteronomy chapter 22, 11, don't mix wool and linen in a garment. I don't know why. No why, no reason is given. It just says don't do that. So it's hard to understand. And then there was the mishpatim, or judgments, which were commands that should be followed even if a commandment from God didn't exist. So it was such a thing as this. Honor your parents. Don't steal. Don't kill. I mean, those are things that are just good things that should apply to anybody's life, whether they are a person who recognizes and respects God or not. They're just good things. The third one was called idot, and that is being a visible witness to others, such as keeping the Passover or wearing the prayer shawl, the talit, as the Jews do. And then in addition, there were another three. Are you confused already? I'm starting to get confused. There was another three called the minhag, the gezerah, and the tekana. If you're Jewish here this morning and I'm massacring those names, please forgive me. The minhag meant that men must wear that yermolki. Aren't these great words? <laughs> you have to be Jewish to get the, get the best out of them, don't you? So that was a requirement. That was a law. The gezerah, laws to protect people from breaking the law. <laughs> Sounds a little political to me. We've got a set of laws to help you so you don't break the law. And then at Tacana, laws helping the general well-being of the community, making sure that husbands meet their obligations to their wives. Interesting stuff. It's worth noting that Jesus was a Jewish boy who would have been required to study the Jewish law, and part of his experience when he was in the temple in Jerusalem would have been discussing the matters of the Jewish law. Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 to 6, if anybody thinks they have confidence in the flesh, I more so, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Talk about a statement of positive activity and attitude. Paul is saying, look, if you want to know anything about the Jewish law, come and talk to me because I'm blameless in the Jewish law. Well, the second thing that the Apostle Paul addressed to the Romans was that the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ, not in human works. <clears throat> Faith is in Jesus Christ, not in human works. Notice what he says here in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 24. But now the righteousness of God has been clearly revealed. I'm reading from the um, Amplified Version. Independently and completely apart from the law, though it is actually confirmed by the law and the words and the writings of the prophets, this righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all those, Jew or Gentile, who believe and trust in him and acknowledge him as God's Son. There is no distinction. Since all have sinned and continually fall short of the glory of God 
and are being justified, declared free of guilt of sin, made acceptable to God, and granted eternal life as a gift by his precious undeserved grace through the redemption, the payment for our sin, which is provided in Christ Jesus. You see, the reality, friends, is that when Paul wrote that, he wrote that to an audience that understood what sin was. You say, duh, don't we understand what sin was? Not the way they did. You see, in their culture, a sin was to miss the mark with your arrow when you were shooting. When you were out there hunting an animal, whether you were, uh, you know, in a mode of survival or continuous caring for life, or whether you were out in a military fray and you were using your, your, your bow and your arrow as your offense mechanism, when the arrow fell short of its target, when it missed the target, the word that was used was sin. The people knew that. That's an archery word. So we take that word then from God's word from Romans, and we take that and we've learned that Paul uses that word the same way, that when we miss the mark as far as God's standard is concerned, we sin. We miss the mark. We fall short. So what about it? Are we trying to reach God's standard by our own works? Are we trying to reach God's standard by the things we do and, you know, our handsome looks and all this stuff? Well, I'm a good person. I give to the poor. I help uh, uh, the, the, those that are, that are marginalized. I attend church. What else do you want me to do? I don't want you to do anything right now. I want you to believe what Jesus Christ has done for you, and I want you to accept his gift. And friend, today, if you're here and you have not received the gift of God's salvation, I would encourage you today to make this your day. Make this your day that you recognize that what you're doing is missing God's mark and open yourself up to say, God, I recognize that I'm missing the mark and I want to receive your gift today. I come to you by faith. Nothing that I have done, I'm totally undeserving your grace, and I come and receive your gift today. The righteousness of God, the will of God, walking in truth requires that we recognize that it's about him and not about this guy or this, this person, as you would point your finger to yourself. Jesus' command is to walk in truth. God, through Jesus' inspiration of the Scriptures, points out in Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 6, all our righteousness is as filthy rags. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 20, it says, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and does not sin. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, It is by grace that you are saved through faith, not of works, so it's not about the good things that we do. Now we go back to, and if you would turn back with me, please, to Matthew chapter 5. And I want to pick it up after Jesus has laid out the blessings of the beginning of his message in the Sermon on the Mount. He goes on after the verses that we are salt and light. He goes on into verse 17. And he says, I did not come to destroy the law, I came to fulfill the law. 
So here are these people that are gathered on the hillside or wherever they were, and they're listening to Jesus go through the Beatitudes. They're listening to Jesus talk about salt and light. And now Jesus hits the issue of the law. And they're going, yes, it's about time he gets to that. Because, you see, after all, we thrive by the law. We've got 613 of them. (laughs) We do our best to obey all of them because, after all, we want to have the blessing of God. So the blessing of God comes upon us by obeying all 613 of these laws. You see, that is their mindset. And, friends, today I wonder how many of us sometimes function in the realm of a mindset that we're doing all the right things to satisfy a God who stands with a stick ready to whop us if we don't. I wonder how many people there are in society that feel that way. Well, you know, that isn't what Jesus said. Jesus said, I did not come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill the law. Now, let's dig a little deeper and find out what he may have been saying. You see, Jesus had just finished finished saying that we're given a mandate to be salt and light in a tasteless and dark world. So what could he mean by saying he came to fulfill the law? The crowd that Jesus was speaking to knew the law in four ways. Number one, they knew the Ten Commandments. Number two, they knew the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. Number four, three, pardon me, they knew the law and the prophets, referring to a broader range of Scripture. And number four, they knew the oral or scribal law, which was the most common. That was really the 613 laws, the oral or scribal law. So what was Jesus saying? Jesus is pointing out that the Old Testament law dealt with outward actions. The Old Testament dealt with things pertaining to sacrifice, pertaining to to life, and on and on and on. The Old Testament went 613 things. There was even a law that you couldn't write on the Sabbath day. So, you know, me carrying a pen, I better not use it because that would be wrong. No, you see, some of their laws were so petty, some of their laws were so ridiculous, and Jesus is speaking to a crowd that deals with the outward actions of the Old Testament law. Jesus spoke very, very strongly to the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 23 and verse 25. He says, woe to you. Whenever there is a woe mentioned in Scripture, that's not referring to the stopping of a horse. That's referring to an outpouring of God's judgment And he's saying, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they're full of extortion and self-indulgence. You see, he's starting to pull the layer off now as we would pull the, the, the skin off an orange. He's starting to pull the outside layer off and start to reveal some of the inner stuff that they didn't want anybody to know about. You remember the story of the woman taken in adultery? And they hauled her in there and dumped her at the feet of Jesus because the law said that she should be stoned. What about the guy? Oh, no, he's scot-free, isn't he? 
So Jesus knelt down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And while he's down there looking at the sand, he said, He that was without sin, let him cast the first stone. And one by one, they started to slip away. Because they knew full well that their actions were outward actions. They knew full well that they had no grace within their heart. They had no mercy. They had no compassion for this woman at all. Because there she lay in a rumpled heap on the ground in front of Jesus. Until they were all gone. And he looked up. And he said to her, where are your accusers? And she said, they have all gone. And he said, listen... I'm not going to condemn you either, but go and don't do this anymore. Stop this behavior. I'm not going to do this. I don't want you to do this anymore. So Jesus came down very strongly on the scribes and Pharisees for their outward actions of purity and holiness and holding to all 613 elements of the law, but yet within they were full of filth, extortion, and self-indulgence. In another place, he called them white sepulchers, and inside you're full of people's decaying remains. The kingdom of Jesus Christ cautions us to beware of sinful outward attitudes that lead to sinful outward actions. As I've said before, and I might sound like a broken record over the days and months, you see, every action, I don't care what the action is, is preceded by an attitude. And when you and I do anything, whether it's eating our breakfast or walking in here, leaving the building, whatever we do, is preceded by an action that this is what I'm going to do. In all things, a man must seek God's will. And in that, when he knows that he must dedicate his whole life to obeying it. And you know, friends, it does not become tedious and grievous but it becomes walking in truth, which is walking in joy, walking in blessedness. Blessed is the man that, blessed is, and read it in the Beatitudes. There we have it. Well, the law of God, the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, is really summed up in one word. It could be the word respect. It could be the word reverence. We have friends in Saskatoon that are, are from South Africa, and uh, this lady and, and man, we got to know them over the years. And she said, uh, I grew up in a home where if we did something wrong, we disobeyed, we, we, we were bad as children. She said, my mother would sit us down on a chair. And she said, I want you to sit there until you can tell me which one of the Ten Commandments you broke. How about that? You sit there until you tell me which one of God's laws you violated. You see, when we bring this into the context of respect or reverence, what happens is that Jesus' fulfillment of the law, he said, I didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. Jesus' fulfillment of the law teaches us to revere God, show reverence to God. We could do a whole sermon series on revering God, couldn't we? It teaches us to give reverence to his day. We find out in Scripture the Lord's day. It teaches us to respect 
our parents and, and, and those that are, are senior to us, whether they're biological or, or parents in, in, in action. It teaches us to respect life. Friends, today we've got people out there these days that don't respect life. They're using all kinds of methods and means to terminate life. From the time conception happens on, let's see what we can do to terminate this thing, until we get into the elderly years of life, and those of us that are getting a little white or a little blank on the top, let's see what we can do to terminate life. It's rather sad. I believe that this is not the fulfillment of God's law. Respect property. Respect our own property. Respect the property of others. Respect the truth of God's Word. Respect ourselves and respect our fellow man. And on the list could go. Jesus came to show men what reverence for God and respect for mankind is all about. Jesus revered his Father God, and he respected those around him in his circumstances. The reverence and respect did not consist in struggling to obey 613 rules and regulations, not in sacrifice but in mercy, not in legalism but in love, not in prohibition but in positive instructions to mold their lives. So friends, today the gospel and the law of God are woven together like a cord of many strands, yarns and fibers. There is intricacy in the relationship. All of these elements in the law of God teach us who we are and what we do as a result of who we are. That is Jesus' fulfillment of the law, teaching us who we are and what we do as a result of who we are. Jesus said, I have come to fulfill the law. Friends, today this is the sum total of the Scriptures. And when Jesus started out his inaugural address, his discourse on the Sermon on the Mount, and he started out by laying out where we are spiritually and how we move along. And if you've missed the last two messages that I shared on the Beatitudes, you're welcome to go onto the website and get those so you get a little context of what I'm talking about here. And when he started that out, he was laying foundation. He was laying the pillars. He was laying the concrete foundation for building the rest of his teaching through his next years. And you follow it back and you see the big picture. You see the context of Jesus' teaching and there it is. This is the sum total of the Scriptures. The three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, written by the Apostle John, capsulize this very, very well. And might I just add here that, friend, today, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have chosen to trust Him and receive His gift, those three letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John apply to you. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, you were saying, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe God doesn't exist, I'm going to, I don't know. Those three letters really don't apply to you. There's good word in there, and you can say, well, I gained a lot from that. Well, fine, but really those three letters were written to the church. So here's what they say, and I'm going to just capsulize them very, very quickly. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 6 says, I say that we have fellowship, uh, sorry, me, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. 
That's sort of the essence of what 1 John is saying. And it gives us a provision there that if we recognize that we've sinned and we say we're sorry, we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. If we go into 2 John chapter 1 and verse 4, John says, I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we have received the commandment from the Father. John is celebrating the fact that here's a group of people that have got it together. There's a group of people that are walking in truth, and John is celebrating that. 3 John chapter 1 and verse 3 says, I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified to the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. You see, John is saying, I celebrate today with you that are walking in truth. And 3 John chapter 1 and verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Now, friends, we read at the beginning from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, and I want to read the passage again as I close this morning, but I want to read it from the message version of Scripture because this sometimes puts it a little more into our vocabulary context. Here it goes. By entering through faith into what God has always wanted to do for us, set us right with Him and make us fit for Him, we have it all together in God, with God, our Master Jesus. But that's not all. We throw open our doors to God and discover at the same moment that He has already thrown open His door to us. You know, it's interesting. Let me interrupt myself a moment here, please. God is far more willing to open His door than we are, open, than we are willing to open ours. Isn't that the truth? God is far more willing to come to us than we are to come to Him. We find ourselves standing where we had always hoped we might stand, out in the wide open spaces of God's grace and glory, standing tall and shouting our praise. There's more to come. We continue to shout our praise even when we're hemmed in with troubles because we know how troubles can develop passionate patience in us and how that patience in turn forges the tempered steel of virtue, keeping us alert for whatever God will do next. In alert expectancy such as this, we never, we're never left feeling short-changed. Quite the contrary. We can't round up enough containers to hold everything that God generously pours into our lives through the Holy Spirit. Christ arrives right on time to make this happen. He didn't and doesn't wait for us to get ready. He presented himself for this sacrificial death when we were far too weak and rebellious to do anything to get ourselves ready, and even if we hadn't been so weak, we wouldn't have known what to do anyway. We can understand someone dying for a person worth dying for, and we can understand how someone good and noble could inspire us to selfless sacrifice, but God put his love on the line for us by offering his son in sacrificial death while we were of no use to him whatsoever. Wow, get that. Why would we put that kind of, interrupt myself again, why would anybody put that kind of energy into us? when we're of absolute no use to him. 
Get back to verse 9. Now that we are set right with God by means of this sacrificial death, the consummate blood sacrifice, there is no longer a question of being at odds with God in any way. If when we were at our worst, we were put on friendly terms with God by the sacrificial death of His Son, now that we're at our best, we just think of how our lives will expand and deepen by means of His resurrection life. Now that we have actually received this amazing friendship with God, we are no longer content to simply say it in plodding prose. We sing and shout our praises to God through Jesus the Messiah. Friends, this is walking in truth. This is God's will. This is a lesson from Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me? As the worship team comes to join us, I want to challenge us today, friends. If you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus, what have you got to lose? The greatest gift of all, eternal life. Eternal life future. Eternal life present is there for us, for you. I'm going to lead us in a prayer this morning, and if you've never trusted Christ, why don't you pray along with me this simple prayer? Lord Jesus, I'm thankful that in my present state, a state of confusion, a state of lostness, a state of just being puzzled, you love me. You love me just the way I am. But Jesus, I recognize that you love me too much to leave me there. And you want me to receive the gift of eternal life, the gift of salvation that you offer. Jesus, I extend my hands to you today to receive that gift. I extend my spirit to you today I extend my will to you today to receive the gift of your love, your salvation. Thank you, Jesus, for this great gift. Thank you for dying on the cross to take the punishment for me. And friend, today, if you're here and you're not walking in tune with the Lord Jesus, I would encourage you to go before him and apply 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I encourage you to apply that today because Jesus wants us to be blessed. He wants us to walk in truth. Father, I want to say thank you for these lovely people today. I want to say thank you for the blessing that you've placed upon us here in this part of the country. For those that are guests here with today, with us today, I include them as well. And Father, we want to walk in truth. May your word live in reality to us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.